The scripture for the sermon is from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's word. Thank you, Katie. We're looking at uh, the Old Testament book, Isaiah, the first and the uh, greatest of the prophets, certainly greatest in terms of length, but also greatest in terms of the detail of the prophecies. And as we're looking at it, we're mindful, as we look at the Old Testament, we're mindful of the New Testament, where Jesus said that the Old Testament is all about him. And so what we're looking for is Jesus in the Old Testament. We're looking for the coherence of the Old Testament, how it's a a unified story, how it is a book that refers forward through prophecy, but also back as the disciples and Christians reflect on the prophecies of the Old Testament. Who was Isaiah? Well, God through his providence, creates a holy nation through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God and is called Israel. He has 12 sons. They become the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel, and together they form a holy nation. And God promises that through that lineage, that the descendants of Abraham, he's going to bless the world. But then humanity and the human kings of Israel intervene. And the human kings of Israel stop trusting in God, God's providence and God's purpose, and start wheeler dealing as typical politicians and kings of the time did, looking out for themselves and their families, politicking, becoming corrupt. King Ahaz even uh, sacrifices his children to try to get his way. And so God sends prophets to his people, to Israel, to correct them, to remind them of who they are, to speak his truth into their falsehood, to restore them. And this goes on and on until, at the time of Isaiah, the great prophet, we get to King Ahaz. And Ahaz completely violates his relationship with God, leads his people astray, makes a foolish um, covenant uh, treaty with uh, the Assyrian Empire, which ends up swallowing up God's people. And so we see in Isaiah a bifurcation. God ends his relationship with the human kings of Israel, But he also begins to promise and to sketch out the details of a future king, a divine king, 
a Messiah who will be faithful, who will be true, who will fulfill the promise of the people of Israel. And so you get these two parallel stories in Isaiah. One, Isaiah speaking to the people of the time, but at the same time, Isaiah speaking about a future king, a future promised Messiah. And week by week, we've been sketching out the outlines of that. If you were here last week, you know that we were looking at the fear of God. What does that mean? And why God is just plain scary. His omnipotence, his justice, his perfection, his holiness. And how we, in comparison, are, in the words of Jonathan Edwards, like a, a spider dangling on, by a thread over a fiery furnace. We look to the God of judgment, the God of wrath, the God of damnation. But you see there's a change here. Comfort, comfort my people. That's because there is a change in the book of Isaiah. If you buy commentaries on Isaiah, by the way, they're very thick. This is a very big book. And typically they divide into two sections. Chapters 1 through 39, and then chapters 40 through 66. And they change right here because the entire tone of Isaiah changes. It changes from judgment, wrath, punishment, the fearful God of holy law, to a God of grace and comfort and tenderness and love. It's a very stark change, and it happens right here in verse 40. Let me read to you the end of chapter 39. Then Isaiah said to the king, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stood up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's Isaiah 39, continuing the theme of judgment and punishment. And then suddenly, verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. A complete change of voice, a complete change of mood and emphasis, a complete change of relationship. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. All the harshness, all the judgment, wrath, and punishment is gone here. This is the language of a lover or a friend. There is an intimacy here that wasn't present in the previous chapters. Her hard service has been completed. You could translate that her period of duress. We know from history that Jerusalem was besieged by the Assyrian Empire, that it fell 
that all of God's holy people fell to this conquering army. The temple was destroyed. It was stripped of uh, all the uh, treasure, all the things that God had commanded to be put there. Everything was destroyed. Everything was carried away to Babylon, including many of the elites, the leaders of Israel. It was an absolute catastrophe. But here, in verse 40, Isaiah looks forward to a time when that will be finished. When that will be over, because her sin has been paid for. The language here, her sin has been paid for, has been paid for, is language that is used of the blood sacrifice at the temple uh, in Jerusalem. It's looking forward to a day when a blood sacrifice, in addition to the punishment of Jerusalem, has been paid. And God and his people are restored. And then we get a remarkable passage. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged plains, the rugged places, a plain. The imagery here, the metaphor, is of a king traveling or visiting within his kingdom. And the kings, when they traveled, had armies. They had retinues. They gave trains of followers who would follow with them. whole household would come. And so this, the roads and the bridges either had to be built or restored. The king traveling around the kingdom was a way of creating infrastructure or restoring infrastructure to the kingdom. And so that's the image that you have here of a human king returning or traveling back to his kingdom and restoring it. Or a divine king who restores and redeems everything in his presence. That's the imagery here. I'm going to go off a tangent now. Some of you are going to like this. Some of you are not going to like this. I'm going to add a little math to the theology. I came across an odd paper on Isaiah when I was thinking about this series some months ago. And it points out something which I have never heard before. And some of you will think this is just kind of weird and creepy, and others will be thinking, wow, this is kind of interesting. We'll see what you think. Um, remember, the whole theme here, and what we've been trying to do, is to tie the Bible together. So it's not just an Old Testament and a New Testament. Prophecy, and specifically Isaiah, ties it together because Isaiah's prophecies look forward in history to the time of Christ, and Christ and his disciples use that prophecy to look backwards in history to interpret who Jesus is, who the Messiah is. They look at each other through the lens of prophecy and the Messiah. But there's an even more connection. How many books are in the Bible? You could Sunday school types will know this, right? 66. 
66 books in the Bible. How many chapters in Isaiah? 66. It's a little bit interesting. Not, not interesting it is, right? There's a natural divide in the Bible between the Old Testament, where we have the God of holiness, law, and judgment, and the New Testament, which emphasizes God's tenderness, his love, and his grace through Jesus. So the Old and New Testament are a natural division of the Bible. Well, there's a natural division in Isaiah as well. The first 39 chapters, as we've seen, are all about the God of law and holiness, judgment, and wrath. But right here, beginning in chapter 40, right to the end, 66, it's all about tenderness, comfort, love, grace. And just as there are 39 chapters in the first part of Isaiah, there are 39 books in the Old Testament. And just as there are 27 chapters in the second book, of, the second part of Isaiah, there are 27 books in the New Testament. Now that's a little bit more interesting, right? But here's the real test. How does the New Testament begin? Well, it starts with the Gospels. And how do the Gospels begin? Mark 1. This is Mark 1. Verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Right here in Isaiah, 740 years, probably a little bit more, the Gospels are written, you have that prophecy. How about the Gospel of John? This is John 1. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. By the way, Christ is just the Greek way of saying the Hebrew Messiah. Same title. And Isaiah looked forward to it. And as soon as Christ's ministry began, John the Baptist identified him as the prophesied king who would return. Jesus Christ is not just someone who shows up by accident. Jesus Christ is the one that the herald, John the Baptist, announces as the returning king the divine king who will make up for the failures of the human kings of Israel and Judah. And remember, how did Jesus begin his ministry? He was baptized, 
He was tempted. And then he began by saying, Repent, the kingdom of God is here. The king has returned. That's how Jesus identified himself. Do you see how, how it's united? The Bible is not a series of random books. The story of the Bible, of all those thousands of years, is coherent. And it is part of the same story. And it talks about the same person. And it is always focused on Jesus. The whole Old Testament looks forward to him. And the faith of people in the Old Testament is faith in the future Messiah. God's provision. The New Testament is all about him and what he did. And the faith of people, Christians, in Jesus is the faith in the Messiah the Old Testament promised. It is all one story. Final verse, verse 5 there. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together. For the mouth of the law, the Lord has spoken. Jesus is the revelation of God's glory. How do we know who, Je who God is? Through Jesus. Because he is the one who comes from God, the promised king. Now, if we had finished last week with uh, the fear of the Lord, the fear of this omnipotent, holy God of wrath, that would only be a partial view. Remember I said that uh, the real power of God, his omnipotence, his raw, naked power, is part of his glory. Glory, the Hebrew word, is rooted in the concepts of weightiness, significance, that which has consequences. And that is true of the raw, naked power of God. But there is more to God's glory. We are not just confronted with raw power. Through Jesus, we get a fuller picture of his glory. A glory that now includes tenderness, comfort, grace, and love. But it's a problem. How do you put those two ideas together? A God of infinite wrath against injustice and sin? A holy God that looks on sinners with contempt and loathing? And a God of love and tenderness? How can those two things be put together? They're put together and they're revealed in Jesus. I was told this story, a little fairy tale I'm going to tell you now. I was told it so long ago, I don't remember where I got this from. Probably Tim Keller, but I don't actually know. Once upon a time, there was a king, ruler of a mighty kingdom. He had vast armies, incalculable wealth, and was widely feared and admired. And all the neighboring kingdoms tried to marry off their daughters to him so they'd be safe, so they wouldn't have to worry about anything. But there was a problem. In an obscure little hamlet, part of his kingdom, 
as he had traveled around his realm, he had noticed and fallen in love with a little peasant girl. And his heart completely belonged to her. Couldn't help himself. Hopelessly and completely in love. What is he to do? Well, you might think it's not such a big problem. He's a mighty king. He's got vast armies, incalculable power and wealth. He could just summon her to his castle. She was his subject. She would have to do what he asked. She'd have to come. But if she came like that, if he forced her to come to him in his vast castle, surrounded by his retinue, she'd be terrified. Little peasant girl from a little hamlet. How could they ever have a real relationship with each other? It wouldn't be true love. It wouldn't be a true relationship. She would be in awe. She'd be terrified. She'd do anything he said. It would be the relationship of power to slavery. That wouldn't work. Well, he could go to her. If the mountain doesn't come to Muhammad, Muhammad has to go to the mountain. He could show up in a little hamlet. But imagine this king shows up with all his glory and all his army and all his retinues, floods that little hamlet. What do you think? She, how would she respond? How could she possibly see herself with any kind of equality to him? Once again, she'd be overwhelmed. It would literally blow her mind, this king showing up like that. How could she possibly deal with that? Third possibility, he could disguise himself. He could wear the clothes and adopt the behavior of ordinary common people. He could enter her hamlet as an ordinary man in disguise. He could woo her. He could win her heart gradually. It'd be a real relationship. However, there'd be a problem. He would be living a lie. At the bottom of their relationship, there would be a lie. He would still be the king. She would still be the little peasant girl. How can you build a loving relationship on a lie? It's never going to work. If he truly, really is hopelessly in love, if he truly wants to put her before everything else, the only thing he could actually do would be to give up all his power, give up all his wealth and his position, Give up his majesty. Go to her as an ordinary person, running the risk that she would reject him, running the risk that she wouldn't fall in love with him. He'd have to become vulnerable. It would be a terrible risk. He'd give up everything. But if he loved her enough, that's what he would have to do. Well, that is exactly what is revealed in Jesus. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Philippian church. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
It is exactly what Jesus did, that little story. The mighty, infinite, omnipotent God giving all that away so he could draw close and be vulnerable and have a real relationship with us. God is not just a God of wrath and justice, but he's a God of love and intimacy and vulnerability. Now, the trouble with that is it's a fairy story, right? It's like a Hallmark card. Have you ever heard anything more sentimental and pappy? What is the power in that? There's no power in such stories. They make us weep, but then we move on. However, there's more. Because there is a double movement in the gospel. It is not just God humbling himself in Christ. It is Christ taking on to himself all that separates us from God. The humble God descends, becomes one of us and joins our world, becomes just like us. Goes ultimately as far and as deep as the cross and death and the grave. But then there's an upward movement. The second part of Philippians. Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus descends into our sin and darkness so that we can ascend through him and with him. And so there is a movement in the heart, a double movement. First, the acknowledgement that we talked about last week, our own lost, broken sinfulness. The fact that we are so very far away from God, the fact that we need a Savior. And when we see Jesus on the cross, taking that onto himself, then we begin to see the depths and the extent and the full reality of his love for us. And that's where the power is. That's where the grace is. That's where the transformation occurs. You will only truly see God's glory. God will only truly be revealed to you on the cross when you see him there for you. I think the best example I know of this is the story of John Newton. John Newton was the captain of a slave ship. Now, if you've read anything about slavery, you know that the voyage, the, the picking up of slaves in Africa and the dropping off of the survivors in the Americas was one of the cruelest and bloodiest trades ever known. The way that people were treated on the boats and cast overboard when there were storms or problems, treated in ways you can't even imagine. That was his job. That was his career. That's what he spent his life doing, John Newton. But on May 10th, 1748, he wrote it down. He was caught, and his ship was caught in a terrible storm. 
And thinking that it was sinking, and he was lost, and everybody in the boat was lost, he called out to God, Lord, have mercy upon us. And the ship survived. And he was convinced that it only survived through God's grace and mercy. And so he celebrated that date ever onwards. And when he swallowed the anchor and left the Navy, left uh, sailing, he became a Christian minister, proclaiming the gospel. And he wrote one of the most famous Christian hymns, Amazing Grace, all about the grace that he experienced through God on that night. Bill Moyers did a special on Amazing Grace. And he speculated, he argued, that the tune of Amazing Grace was probably one of the tunes that Newton heard the slaves singing from the holds of his slave ships. How much power is in that grace? How much power is in a heart changed by Jesus' grace? By Jesus showing mercy on a man as broken and sinful as Newton? Well, it turned out that one of the congregants of John Newton was a man called William Wilberforce. And William Wilberforce, this was a time when the slave trade generated huge uh, amounts of money and trade for the British Empire, at that time the greatest empire in the world. William Wilberforce, when he became a Christian, decided he was going to dedicate his life to ending slavery. And he formed a small group. They were called the Clapham Sect. And they, when they were young, bound together, they committed to meeting every week and praying and working towards the end of slavery. And William Wilberforce ran for Parliament, and he became a member of Parliament, and his whole life was dedicated to ending this trade. Now, at the time... The amount of money generated, it would be like taking today, it would be like taking on the oil industry and getting rid of oil. They, pay, they prayed for decades, but eventually it worked. And through William Wilberforce, a bill was put before Parliament, and slavery was banned throughout the British Empire. Now, it didn't end it completely, but that one changed heart on that ship in the middle of the storm that called out in desperation and received mercy and grace, transformed the world, transformed an empire. That is the power of the gospel. That's how it works. When you see in Jesus, on the cross, justice, the punishment for sin, but love, a love that would put itself in your harm's way, and pay the price for you to be free. That's the glory that Jesus reveals. That is the promised King and Messiah. That's the Christ who starts a church. That's the Christ that changes hearts and minds of not just people, but entire nations and cultures. That's the Christ that we worship. And it started right there, back with Isaiah. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that through Christ you reveal yourself. Implacable, 
against injustice, filled with love and tenderness and forgiveness. Impossible to reconcile until we see you on the cross for us. Lord, melt our hearts. Show us the depths of your love. Transform us into a people about your business who call you Lord, who serve your kingdom. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.